God's great desire for his people is that we feel secure in his love and in his power. The gladiator was secure in his identity, and that's why he could stand toe-to-toe with the emperor and declare who, in fact, he was. We have from our Heavenly Father an identity that is secure, and his great desire for us is that we understand his security and his love and his power that exists within us. Your life may be unstable, and from time to time all of our lives become that way. Your job might be terminated. I spoke with a guy in the first hour who'd recently been unemployed. Your health may be coming apart and you have situations in your, in your body that you cannot control. The world may be topsy-turvy, and at times it is. Your relationships that you have counted on may have let you down. Your family may be a disaster right now. And yet, even though you are 40 stories up on a ledge with the wind blowing and you try to reach for a brick and the mortar breaks loose, we can be sure that when we swore allegiance to Christ that we would have security in his love and in his power. But we did, in fact, when we followed Christ, signed up and pledged allegiance for a most dangerous mission. The Apostle Paul put it this way, how about tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Paul says, in many ways we are given as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet Paul, writing from a Roman jail, is secure in God's love and in God's power. Paul had a right to talk about hope, perhaps more than any other person. In 2 Corinthians 11, he lists the things that have beaten him up over his lifetime. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the ocean. I have been on frequent journeys, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false. Brethren, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me, says Paul, of my concern for the churches. Yes, when I read about Paul and then I look at my life and I get depressed about the most ridiculous little piddly things, I'm, I'm a pathetic creature at times. And yet here's Paul as an elderly man in a Roman prison who's got hope, who's got joy, who's got enthusiasm. In fact, as he writes this letter, he's looking forward to escaping prison and going to Spain with the gospel. You know, Paul was not one to coast home. Paul did not round third and then slide. Paul finished well. And he wants for us to finish well. But if we begin to seek our security anywhere other than in God, we will be disappointed. If you seek your security anywhere else but in God, the Bible would call that sin. If your security is in your health or your money or your family or your job or your education, the Bible is a threat to you. And so we come today to continue our study in the book of Ephesians, and we read, as Brian had shared with, or Dave had shared with us last week, 
Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful where? In Christ. Say, in Christ. If you belong to Jesus, you are in Christ. And then Paul gives them the salutation, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced the whole idea of Ephesus. We said that Ephesus is a part of Asia. Paul had gone on three missionary journeys. You remember that? There was the first journey, then the second journey, then the third journey. And on the third journey, Paul, in Acts chapter 19, started the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is the capital of Asia. And to be born a citizen of Ephesus gave that Roman an identity, a citizenship that stood out from among other cities. The people of Ephesus were viewed in high esteem because their city was a major province in the Roman Empire. They had, if you remember, the Temple of Diana there, or the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And although the city was very interested in spirituality, the Temple of Artemis was also a source of great wealth and commerce. The city of Ephesus had a harbor. In fact, this highway goes to the sea from the city itself. At the time of Paul, it was right on the coast. But when Paul approached the city, he would have come up this main street, turned right, and seen the library. Education was big in Ephesus, as it is in our day. The library at Ephesus, reconstructed here by the archaeologists, was the third largest in antiquity, full of scrolls and books that dealt with everything from magic potions to magic spells to self-help books, thousands of them. And then the church at Ephesus got so big that the silversmith Demetrius called a meeting that ended up in the Colosseum, actually the, the, the theater at Ephesus. And the last time we were in Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts, 30,000 people have gathered in this place screaming, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Paul wanted to preach to the multitude because he was secure in God's power and God's love. But the brethren decided, Paul, that is not the best use of your time or body. So Paul leaves Ephesus behind and he goes home to Jerusalem whereupon he gets himself arrested and the Roman authorities let him stay in prison in Israel for some two years. He underwent a series of three trials, the last of which was by King Agrippa. Say Agrippa. Agrippa couldn't come to grips with Paul's faith. And Paul said, you know, Agrippa, I am a Roman citizen and I want to be tried by Caesar. And under Roman law, anyone could be heard by Caesar himself. So Agrippa ships Paul off to Rome, and there he goes to a prison. But from that prison cell, he writes the book of Ephesus, and he writes Philippians, and he writes Philemon, and he writes Colossians, some of the books that shaped the early church. This little Jewish man had an impact on all of the Western world for eternity because he was secure in God's hope and in God's power. He was leading the Roman guards to Christ who would then go out as missionaries through the ancient world. And when you study Paul's life, he wanted to get out of that prison, not just to be a free man, but rather to get to Spain with the gospel. Here at the end of his life, he's looking at new horizons because Paul had a sense of who he was, just like that gladiator, I am Maximus, servant of the true emperor, married to a murdered wife, father of murdered son, and he would have his day. Paul knew who he was, and that allowed him to write the book of Ephesians. And the key to understanding Ephesians is this phrase, in Christ. Last week, Dave shared with us, and did such a wonderful job, that this whole first part of Ephesians 1, from verses 3 down through verse 14, is one sentence long. I remember when I went to the theological cemetery, 
I had four years of Greek, and one whole year was devoted to the study of Ephesians. So, I mean, I know Ephesians. In fact, when I got out of seminary, I didn't teach Ephesians for 10 years. I was so sick of Ephesians. But we had to outline the book of Ephesians in Greek. And you try to outline a sentence that's that long in Greek. Remember when you diagram sentences? That's, how, that's what we had to do with the whole book. But this one sentence is just spectacular. Because in this one sentence, Paul says, you know, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in giving us security and love. First of all, God the Father, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Say in Christ. Just as he chose us where? In him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God the Father has given us every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us, and in fact, verse 4 continues, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. God has chosen us. He's predestined to adopt us. And that is our identity. My Father is God Almighty. My Father is the King, greater than any emperor that the gladiator served. But not only did God the Father take part in my salvation, God the Son did the work as well. Beginning in verse 6, it says, To the praise of His glorious grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. There is in Christ again. In Him we have what? Redemption, Dave shared with us, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve God choosing us. We don't deserve God adopting us, nor do we deserve Jesus redeeming us and forgiving us. But God lavish, lavishes upon us His grace. You see, when I begin to understand the grace of God, especially into the context of Ephesians, where everything is spiritual, and in our world today, everybody has a sense of spirituality, but there's a false spirituality that permeates our world. And Satan cannot imitate the grace of God. And it is the grace of God that allows our Father to choose and adopt us. It is the grace of God that allows the Son to redeem and forgive us. And then, so as not to be left out, the Spirit has a role. And today we're going to cover the role of the Holy Spirit in talking about our relationship with God. It begins where? In Him. That phrase, in Him or in the Beloved, in Christ, it occurs 11 times in this one paragraph, this one sentence. And it's such a wonderful picture of how God sees us. God sees us as in Christ. Now, what does that mean? In the Greek language, there are two words that describe the word in. One is the word E-I-S. It's the word ice. But that is not the word used here. The word used here is en, E-N Christos, in Christ. And uh, there's, there's some ways that you can describe that, but I watched a documentary one time that gave me a, a vivid picture of how God sees me. In New Zealand, they're famous for basically one thing. What is it? Sheep. There's two sheep. In fact, there's a sheep and a lamb. I think they're called ewes. Aren't they called ewes? Ewes are getting it right. Anybody from New Jersey just got that. And here's the deal. There's one kind of sheep very valuable to the New Zealand shepherds that usually only has one lamb at a time. If the mama sheep happens to bear twins, 
She will nurse and care for the firstborn, but allow the second one to be neglected and, and will die. So the shepherds have learned over the years that if a mama lamb has twins, they take the youngest and they separate it right away from that mama lamb. She goes on about her business, raising her single child. Then they wait for another ewe to have a stillborn lamb. And as soon as that happens, they take the stillborn lamb and they skin it. And they take the skin along with the afterbirth and they wrap it around the coat of that orphaned baby. And then they introduce that orphan to the new mom. And because that orphan is now in the skin of her stillborn lamb, she adopts it as her own. Isn't that a, a great picture? That's how God sees us. God has sent for us Jesus, sometimes called the Lamb of God. And he has died for us. So that when you come to faith in Christ, God sees you as in Christos. You are in him and he sees you as his own. And he adopts you because he chose to do that before the foundation of the world. Isn't that a great picture? We are in Christ. Say in Christ. In Christos. In Christ, in him, we also have obtained a what? An inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope where? In Christ would be to the praise of God's glory. See, God has given you and me an inheritance. The inheritance is who we are in Christ. God the Father chooses us. God the Father adopts us. God the Son redeems us and forgives us. But we are given an inheritance. I have uh, a will. I hope you have a will. If you take the Financial Peace University class, you will end up getting a will. You need to have a will. It's God's will for you to have a will. But the first will we had drawn up, we, we had done when we first moved to Florida over 30 years ago. And at that time, we only had three children. And then lo and behold, Johnny showed up. And a couple of years ago, I was thinking about this because I'm old now. I'm getting, I was 60 at the time. And I said to Gwen, we ought, to, we ought to look at our will and make sure it's current. And lo and behold, we went through the will and Johnny was missing. And I didn't want Johnny to miss out on his inheritance because, I mean, we're, we're leaving billions behind. <laughs> Actually, I wanted him to be responsible to pay the bills when I was gone. And so we redid our will, and that way he is assured of his inheritance, as are my grandchildren. And I have ten grandchildren. I know I don't look that old, but I have ten of them. And one of them, you know, is Emmett. And even though Emmett has been adopted into our family, he has all the same rights as all my other grandchildren to the billions of dollars in my estate. See, God has an inheritance for you. He wants you to be secure in his love and in his power. And the main point I want to make today is that God's desire for you is that you feel secure in God's love and in God's power so you can enjoy your inheritance. Back in the early part of the 1900s, there was a woman named Hetty Green. You can look up old Hetty. She was called the Witch of Wall Street. She was the first great female financier. Hetty Green amassed a fortune that at the time of her death was over $100 million. She died in 1916. Imagine how much $100 million would be in today's money. Billions and billions. 
But Hetty Green was known mostly for her frugality. She lived the last years of her life on cold oatmeal because she didn't want to pay to heat the water. Hetty Green had a son who lost a leg. It was amputated because she wouldn't spend the money to take him to see a doctor. She ultimately died in a heated conversation with a friend about whether to buy skim milk or whole milk. Hetty Green left $100 million behind and never lived as though she could enjoy that. And see, God has for you and for me an inheritance. And he wants us to live according to our inheritance. If God is your Father and you are in Christ, if you've been predestined and chosen and adopted and redeemed and forgiven, you have an identity that is secure. Your Father is the King of the universe. And that's why Paul writes this letter and he starts in chapter 1. Here's who you are in Christ. You are a son or a daughter of the king. Make sure you enjoy your inheritance like a prince or a princess ought to. Because God the Father is involved and God the Son is involved. And then in our verses today we're going to see how God the Holy Spirit gives us our inheritance. As you might guess, verse 13 starts out with that phrase, in him. In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you've believed in Christ, and by that I mean you've gone all in with him, you understand that Jesus and him alone died for your uh, your sins on the cross, and that that and that enough alone is is enough to get you to heaven, and you're going all in and you're going to live for him. You know, there are people that say they believe, but they really haven't gone all in. There are different levels of believing. There's a difference between having a relationship with God and having fellowship with God. If you've gone all in with Christ, you have a relationship that's permanent. Your fellowship will vary. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes we sin. Sometimes we screw up. But the great thing is the relationship does not end. You are secure as a child of the King because you are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit. Now, the word seal is a wonderful, hard word to say in Greek, so I didn't even put it up here. It's the word sfragizo. Sfragizo. And the word seal is used three ways in the New Testament. All these verses involve the word sfragizo. The first is to lock it up. On Easter Sunday, right before Jesus was resurrected on Saturday, they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a sfragizo on the stone. And it means to lock something up. That's what God has done with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us and he locks us up. He puts us permanently into the family of God. There is nothing you can do to stop being God's child once you believe in Christ. You are secure in God's love and in his power. The second use of the word is in the idea of authenticity. Romans 8, 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And again, there are good and and sincere and godly people who say, Well, no, wait, first you believe in Jesus, and later you get the Holy Spirit. And there are four times that happens in the book of Acts. But the book of Acts is not normative for our time. It was a transitional 40-year period between the Old and the New Testament. By the end of the New Testament's writing, the normal thing is that when you believe in Christ, you get the Holy Spirit, and He is your authenticating mark. It's the same word 
used of Jesus where uh, in John 6, 27, God says on Jesus, God has set his seal. John 6, verse 27. It's the idea of in 1 Corinthians, Paul says the believers in Corinth are his seal of apostleship. It shows them to be authentic. And it is the Holy Spirit who ought to be at work in your life that shows you to be authentic. If a person says, oh, I'm a Christian, but the Holy Spirit is not there, and there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life, they probably haven't believed in the correct way. You know, I've said this in here before, but sometimes I have people say, well, I've been a Christian for 30 years. Well, have you been a Christian for 30 years, or have you been a Christian for one year 30 times? If the Holy Spirit is in you, He authenticates who you are. There ought to be changes in your life over time that I can look and say, this is how you were, and now you're different because the Spirit of God has authenticated you. And that's what a seal does. It locks us in, and it authenticates who we are in Christ. And then the third thing the seal does is it protects. In Revelation 7, it says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And during the tribulation time, the believers in Christ will get a mark. I don't know what that's going to be or how that's going to work, but it will protect them from the punishment and the judgment of the Antichrist who rules during that seven-year period. And so the seal is that which protects us. The great thing is that with the Holy Spirit, we get all three of these benefits. The Holy Spirit locks us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit authenticates who we are in Christ. And lastly, the Holy Spirit protects us. You know, if you belong to Christ and the Holy Spirit is your seal, Satan cannot overtake you. Oh, he can harass you and he can try to tempt you and he can dabble around the outskirts of your life. But if you belong to Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, the demons cannot possess you. And so Paul writes to this group of believers in a city where demon possession is rampant, everything is mysticism, everything is spiritual, and he's saying, hey, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The, the devil cannot get to you. You have no part in that. The Father, the Son, the Spirit all play a part in our relationship to God. God's great desire, read this with me, God's great desire for me is that I feel secure in his love and in his power. The Holy Spirit is trying to make that happen for us because he seals us and he's also one other thing. The last thing we'll go over today is verse 14. The Holy Spirit who is given as a pledge, say pledge, of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of God's glory. See, the whole reason God does this is because he's going to bring glory to himself through our relationship to him. And the Holy Spirit seals us. He's our pledge. The word pledge in the old King James is earnest money. Do you know what earnest money is? Earnest money is a down payment. Okay? The Greek word is arabon. It's a down payment or a guarantee. This same word is used here in 2 Corinthians 1. And God has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment you get a little piece of the Holy Spirit when you come to faith of what the rest of your eternity is going to be like. He's the first installment. He's the guarantee. He's the pledge. I bought Gwen a new car last week. Now, I never buy new cars, and you shouldn't either. But I have a friend that sells vans, and we got a great deal on a new van. It's a 2012 new van, 
And we were able to get an extra $1,000 off the price if we financed it. So that means I had to fill out the form, and I did the whole deal. And, you know, now I've got the van, and, and I finance it, and pretty soon in the mail I'm going to get my, my coupon, and I'm going to make the first payment. But I'm not only going to make the first payment, I'm going to pay off the whole van. I've been very fortunate. I would encourage you, don't have a car payment. Drive a clunker, save up, then buy a better clunker. Because I don't want a car payment. It's bad, it's bad stewardship to pay all that interest. If you sell cars in here, I'm sorry. And I make that first payment, and it's going to take care of the whole thing. And in a sense, that's what God has done with us. God's made the first payment in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit. I remember when we, when we bought our first house, we had to put 20% down. And by taking all the money we had in the world and throwing it into that house, the bank knew that that first payment was going to guarantee that we'd make the other payments. And God gives us the Holy Spirit as the first payment, knowing that he's going to make the other payment. He's going to give us all the rest. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's the guarantee of everything that he has promised. I used to work at the Hooters. I was a waitress. No. Hooters was a gas station. When my family moved here in the 60s, there was an Exxon station in that same building, the same cement floor, and I worked there for a couple of years during the summers. I would work there at night, and I would, I would close up shop for my boss. I think I made a dollar and forty cents an hour. Big time. Gas was only eighteen cents a gallon. But sometimes people would show up and they would say, you know, I've run out of gas. I'm just down the street. Can you help me? And I would say, Yes, I can help you. We have a, an old gas can and we'll fill it up. That'll be fourteen cents. And they would say, Great. And off they'd go with the gas can, but I would say, wait a minute, time out. You can't take the gas can unless you leave behind your driver's license. See, the driver's license was the guarantee that they were going to come back and finish dealing with me in the way they should. Once I had the license, they were coming back. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. He is our guarantee. He's the, uh, he's the idea that God has started something in us, and he's going to come back and close the deal. God the Father has chosen us and adopted us. God the Son has redeemed and forgiven us. God the, the Holy Spirit has sealed us and guaranteed us that we are God's possession. So here's what I'd like you to do. Here's your assignment for the week. We're going to read Ephesians 1 together in a minute. And if you're not a good reader, that's okay. And you can read it in any translation after you go home. But this is the New American Standard up here, which is the Bible Jesus used. And I've changed the wording in this just for you and me. And I would encourage you to do this with your Bible on a regular basis. Change the I, me words for the we, us words. Let me show you how this works. Read with me verse 3. This is one sentence. We're going to read one sentence. Blessed be the, come on, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose me in him before the foundation of the world, that I would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined me to adoption as his child through Jesus Christ to himself, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on me in the beloved. Isn't this fun? In him, 
I have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of my trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on me. Isn't that better? And then our verses for today. In him also I have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, including me also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed I was sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge or guarantee of my inheritance with a view to my redemption as God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I'd like you to read, and we said this a couple of weeks ago, read chapter 1 every day this week, and you can actually write in your Bible. You can cross out them and you and put in I and me. It's okay to do that. You have my permission. God is not going to be upset with that. In fact, he loves that because God's word is his love letter to us. And here's why I want you to do that. We live in a time when most of my self-speak, sometimes my conversation with myself, is not in the first person, it's in the second person. And so action step number two, I want you daily to ask God to live in the first person as his child. Let me just talk about that. If you're like me, I have a dialogue that goes on in my brain all day long. Now sometimes I'm talking to the Lord, but sometimes I'm talking to me. And sometimes I say the most awful things to me. And it always starts out with the word you. I do something stupid and I say to myself, you are an idiot. You are stupid. You are wrong. You are ugly. You are old. You are fat. You can't do anything right. You always screw this up. And let me tell you, if that's your self-conversation, Satan is thrilled with that. That's right from the pit. Because Satan in the Bible is called the accuser of the brethren. And he would love for you to concentrate on you being worthless. And I've battled in my life with depression from time to time. And it always has to do with how I see myself as being worthless. You are unable. You are ill-equipped. You can't do this. You can't get anything right. And if that is your self-speak... I want to tell you that you need to change from the second person to the first person. You know, when I go to the grocery store, I don't say, you go to the grocery store. I say, no, I'm going to the grocery store. And when I see that God sees me this way, it ought to be about I, not about you. And I need to stop saying, you are an idiot, and I need to say, no, I am a child of the king. I am have been chosen by God. I am adopted into his family. I am redeemed by his son and forgiven at the cross. I am sealed by his Holy Spirit. And I am guaranteed that I'll be with God forever. Satan, you can't touch me. And see, whatever the world has to dish out. And it will be hard sometimes. You know, Jesus didn't say it would be easy. In fact, just the opposite. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, says Jesus, I have overcome the world. You see, the great thing is God does not want you to live in spiritual poverty. God does not want you to survive on cold oatmeal and skim milk. 
God wants you to know that he's done everything necessary and he's equipped you to do whatever he wants you to do and he's coming back for you to close this deal. God didn't make no junk. God loves you. And God's great desire for you and me is that I feel secure in his love and in his power. Our Father and our God, we are overwhelmed at your goodness. And I pray that today, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus yet, that they'd be willing to get up and say, hey, I need to, I need to get that taken care of. But for those of us who know you and are your children, I pray that you would remind us of how special we are. You have redeemed us. You have sealed us. You have given us an inheritance far beyond any measure the world has. If the world is collapsing around you right now, it, you will not collapse. There will be tough times. God says you will not always hear from me in soft and reassuring tones. And if you try to find your security in anything else other than me, I will threaten you because I love you so much. God says I will not let you stake your life on anything but me because anything else will collapse in the judgment. God says I chose you. I loved you. I predestined you to be my child. I redeemed you. I sealed you. You are going to get your inheritance. You will not collapse. You are a child of the king. God's great desire is for you to feel secure in his love and in his power.